Lord, we come to you now asking for your help and your guidance. And um, we come, Lord, in humility before you. Um, And just reading this passage, we are reminded, Lord, just about the danger of, of life and the storms that you allow us to go through. And so, Lord, give us wisdom, give us discernment, help us, Lord, to, um, to see what it is that you're desiring to teach us this morning, and allow me to be your messenger, to be faithful to the text, and, Lord, to communicate what you desire to your people, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Although I love boats and ships and things nautical, I have not had much opportunity uh, to spend time on the open seas. Some of you here uh, served in our military, in the Navy in particular, maybe another branch, and you spent a lot of time on ships. Um, And some of you, I know, were merchant marines and traveled around the world on incredible ships and Uh, Some of you work on boats, others of you have boats or have family that have boats, and you know what it's like to be out on the open sea. And of course, we live here in the Bay Area, we may take it for granted, but we see boats and ships and, uh, and sailboats and trawlers, it's just a normal part of life here. For many people in our country, they don't even know what the ocean is, um, let alone what a ship is in practicality, but we, we understand that. And to be sure, there's probably some of you in here who have been in raging storms in the middle of the ocean. Um, about five years ago, Ellie and I went on our first ever cruise, and we had a great time. Uh, we enjoyed being out in the open water, but there was no storm. Now, we weren't disappointed at all. Uh, we were thankful. It was calm. It was beautiful. It was a wonderful retreat. When I was a youth pastor in Buffalo, New York, we took a missions trip in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. That was like our home base. We would travel into um, Florida to a place called Lake Okeechobee. But while we were there, our hosts had a yacht, and they wanted to take me and my wife and the teens that were with us, about 10 of us or so, on a yacht ride out from Fort Lauderdale into the ocean. And we thought, what a great idea, what a good break, what a good day that would be for us to do that. It was a beautiful day. It was hot but cooled down with a gentle breeze, you know, just just a wonderful time to be out, especially on the ocean. It was a perfect day for sailing. And we all made our way to the yacht, and when we got on board, we put our life jackets on, and the captain made sure we understood where we could go, where we should be, and how to help with the actual uh, sailing that day. And as we made our way through the channels, we headed out into the open water. And about 10 minutes later, our teens started to just fade. In fact, they started to observe the water with a little bit more clarity, offering up their breakfast as fish bait to all that was around. And uh, that went on for a little bit. And a little while, I got caught up with the same thing, offering my fish bait and, and adding to the chorus of moans and groans that were now taking place. But the captain pressed on. And I can tell you, um, all I wanted to do for the next hour or so was just get back on land, get back to where I was staying, crawl up into a bed, and just sleep it off. Uh, and, And it was a normal, beautiful day with hardly any waves. But if you know what being seasick is like, it was terrible. 
Friends, clearly being out on the open sea isn't always fun. Now we come to Acts 27, and we come to a very famous and true story of the survival in the open seas followed by a shipwreck, but with one, not one crew or passenger lost in this whole ordeal. Now, a wreck of any kind is a terrifying experience. Whether it's a train derailment, an automobile accident, an airplane crash, all of them are terrible, but probably the most terrifying of all is a shipwreck. Why? Because of the prolonged agony of the people that are involved in that shipwreck. The elements being on them and and being hopeless and out at sea. And what we have read in our text ranks up there with the best shipwreck stories in world history. Of course, probably the most famous shipwreck is the Titanic, right? Where it went down, 1,500 people or so died. Another one that came to my mind as I was thinking about this was the the, the total shipwreck of the Spanish Armada. You may not know the story, but uh, the the Spanish Armada came to to combat uh, the, the British fleet, and there was this huge storm. And they lost all sorts of ships. Over 5,000 of of the Spanish fleet um, died that day. Uh, Incredible. But, But this particular tale, true story, is one of the most famous shipwrecks in history. And of course, this is a story of, of Paul and his shipwreck on his way to Rome. And it's also one of the best told and most detailed shipwreck accounts in ancient history, and certainly the most profitable for any hearer. So what are we to do when we find ourselves in the middle of one of life's storms? That's one of the questions that we're going to keep asking today. How are we to respond? Where do we find help? Where do we find wisdom and strength or direction during those difficult and tumultuous times? You see, our storm might be a failing marriage where only coldness and tolerance exists. Or maybe it's one of our young adult children has turned away from the Lord and is running hard after the world. Or maybe it's a loss of job and there's very little income inside. Or maybe it's a health diagnosis that lets you know that life is about to get hard. Or maybe it's the sudden passing of a parent or a loved one. Or maybe the expected passing of those individuals. Or maybe it's the total imploding of your financial portfolio. Some of those things happened not too long ago, if you remember. Or maybe it's your country being invaded by an aggressive and malicious army. Friends, these are all storms of life. These are all things that people have to go through, even believers have to go through. And friends, our passage today is given to us uh, to help us weather the storm. But even more than that, in the context of the book of Acts, it's given to us to weather the storm for gospel witness. And that's really important for us today. In life, we'll experience storms of many kinds, some that many, if not most, will never understand. Many will seem insignificant to others. In fact, uh, someone might be going through their own storm and other people watching on might be thinking to themselves, I don't understand what the big deal is. Why does it seem so, uh, you know, so, why are they so upset? Why are they struggling so much? But to the person who's going through the storm, it is a heavy, tumultuous storm. 
Others will be storms that we all go through. And friends, the reality is if you're living and breathing today, you will likely go through a storm. So how are we to weather the storms of life for gospel witness? What I'd like to do in the time that I have this morning, first of all, is to tell the story of what happens to Paul. We're going to go through uh, the, the, the passage once again, but kind of uh, uh, with, a, with a jet ski, so to speak, just kind of going as fast as we can, but to tell the story in a little bit more detail to, you know, to, to kind of understand what's going on. Because there's a lot of things that are mentioned in this chapter There's probably like, I have no idea what they're doing there. I have no idea what that's talking about. I have no idea what this means. And so we want to put all that together to get the picture of what's actually going on. And then when we're done telling the story, I want to listen to the story to grasp the lessons that God wants us to learn. So this first part, I'm hoping, will go fast so that we can get to the meat of the application for us this morning. So telling the story. And as we jet ski through this passage once again, I want us to see Paul as the central figure. I really don't want to get bogged down in in just kind of explaining everything. I want us to give the big picture, but there are some things that are going to need to be explained. So this all begins with Paul the Roman prisoner. And if you remember, the reason that Paul is even on this journey is because he stood before Festus, and Festus was not going to grant him freedom Uh, He was more concerned about what the Jews thought. And so Paul appealed to Caesar, which meant that he had to go to Rome. And this is the journey now that he's taking to Rome under the protection now of a centurion by the name of Julius. And so right at the start, Luke wants to introduce the main characters in this amazing story. There's Paul, who's joined by two traveling companions, Aristarchus, who's from Thessalonica. We saw him a little bit earlier in, in Acts Then there's also Luke. Now Luke isn't mentioned, but if you notice how the story unfolds, Luke, who's writing this, says, we did this, and we went here, and we, and we, and we. So we understand that there are three, might want to say, Christian traveling companions on this journey. And Aristarchus and Luke, they're there voluntarily to be with Paul on this journey. Then there's Julius, the centurion. He's responsible for Paul, his prisoners, and other prisoners, and uh, the other prisoners that have also come on board. Then there's the sailors, there's the pilot, there's the owner of the ship, and then there's also some soldiers that are under the centurion's leadership. So here we have Paul, who's the Roman prisoner. Now the reason, as I said, for the journey is to appeal to Caesar. And he has to stand before Caesar. That's where God wants him to be, ultimately. But the journey begins in Caesarea on a ship set for a ship of Adrimitum sailing for the ports of Asia. So Jerusalem to Sidon. And they get on this ship. We don't know what kind of ship. It had to be large enough at least to, uh, to carry the, uh, the, the personnel that were with them. It was probably a trading vessel of some kind. But the key point that's revealed to us here by, by Luke is that when they, they stop in at Sidon, the centurion is kind to let Paul go and visit his friends that are in that city, likely a church, and people that are there to help him and to, to, to care for him. So, so far, so good. The journey's great. You would think the rest is going to be fine. And then from Sidon to, to Myra, As the ship travels safely along the coastline, the winds begin to change and they sail under the lee 
of Cyprus. Now that expression, under the lee, means under the protection of. So they're sailing under the protection of a particular island because the winds are blowing a certain way, and if you're on a certain side of an, of an island, then those winds aren't going to affect you. That's the idea. And they end up playing, uh, sailing and, and coming into a place called Myra. There they get on another ship, and it's uh, we're likely a larger cargo ship, and Luke notes later that there's 276 crewmen and passengers that are on board. And as they're sailing from Myra to a place called Fair Havens, which is Crete, and you can see that on the map there, things start to change. The sailing slows down. It becomes more difficult. And they have to go through uh, Sinidos, which where, where the wind wouldn't allow them to go further. I guess back then they didn't have the skill or the ability to tack like maybe people do today. And... Coasting off of Crete, they came to a port of Fair Havens, which is on the southeastern side of Crete. So Paul here is the prisoner. He's on this journey. The, the journey starts to get worse, and they arrive at Crete. So in the first eight verses, half of the journey, so to speak, as far as distance, takes place. But now things start to get a little bit, uh, little bit hairier. Because while they're in Fair Haven, the three leaders, the centurion, the pilot, and the owner, they don't want to stay in Fair Haven because they want to at least go by about 40 miles to the port of Phoenix. But Luke tells us this is the time where the fast has just finished. In other words, the Passover had already taken place. So it was late October, early November time frame and in that context, that is not the time to be going out sailing because of the, the danger that would be in the waters. But hey, it's just 40 miles. So Paul, being an experienced seaman now, comes to that leadership and he says, look, um, I really recommend that you don't go on this journey because you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna lose the boat. You're going to also put people's lives in jeopardy. Well, these men continue to push on under the pressure of comfort because Phoenix apparently was a better port and uh, I guess things haven't changed much. A lot of people still go to Phoenix for the winter, don't they, right? Just Phoenix, United States. There's probably not a port there. I, at least last time I checked, there wasn't at least, right? But Paul here is an experienced seaman. And I no notice what he says. Sir, as I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also our lives. And ultimately, his words are ignored. So he's the Roman prisoner. He is the experienced seaman. Now, Paul, the faithful apostle. Apparently, the weather wasn't that bad when they began to sail. But I can just imagine Paul thinking to himself, it would be a short journey, they said. It's a small risk, they said. Phoenix is a much better port, they said. We'll be docked in the safety and comfort of a harbor, they said. We can spend the winter in a warm villa surrounded by a fire, they said. We'll return in the spring, they said. But what began as smooth sailing turns into a tempestuous wind. The idea there is this is a hurricane. And it's called here a northeaster. It's not that it's heading northeast. It's coming from the northeast, which means it's blowing southwest. And if you look on the map, 
The problem with that is if you blow southwest, you end up on the northern shore of a place called Libya. And this place was considered to be, in that time, their Bermuda Triangle. If ships went down there, they would be destroyed. They would be wrecked. So what happens here is, is all the, uh, the, the, the sailors and the, and the captain, they figure out a plan. And the plan now is to start to do some things with the ship. Now, fortunately, the storm blew under the island of Cauda, modern-day Gaudos, where they had some temporary protection. Again, they were under the lee of that particular island, and they do three things. The first thing they do is they secure the ship's boat, which was floating behind. So they had kind of like a dinghy boat. It was probably bigger than that, but you have the idea. They bring that up into the boat. They secure it. Secondly, and this is really interesting to me, they wrapped or frapped the ship's hull with ropes and cables. It's like, what are they doing? They're putting ropes and cables under the water and wrapping the, the ship with these, these ropes or cables to secure it. It's kind of like, you know, ladies will understand this. When you're, you're going to cook a roast and you tie it up with string, you bind it all together, it's the same idea. The idea was all the, with all the hammering of the waves and the ocean and the storm, doing that would help secure the integrity of the actual ship. The third thing they did is they lowered the sea anchor, and the idea there is it would drag and slow them down as they were being moved by the storm. It was all a good idea, but it didn't stop them from being violently storm-tossed. So the next day, they start jettisoning uh, the, the cargo, but even that wasn't enough. And then the third day, we're told, they throw the ship's tackle overboard. The idea there, it's all the extra nautical gear that they don't essentially need. They're throwing that overboard because they're trying to make sure that they can, uh, they can you know, save themselves from going any further. And to add to their misery, the storm was so heavy that they could not see the sun or the stars for many days. And if you're a nautical person, what does that mean? You have no idea where you are. You're just thrown out on the sea, out in the middle of nowhere. They are truly lost at sea. And so they were without any hope of being saved. They were totally and thoroughly exhausted and desperate. They had given up all hope, Luke tells us. And then Paul stands up as a faithful apostle and gives them encouragement by sharing with them the promise that he had received from the Lord through the angel of God. And though they would, in almost every case, know nothing of Paul and his life and ministry, they were ready to listen to him because they were so desperate and they needed hope. The, the words of promise and assurance were this, Take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. We must run aground on some island. In other words, no one will die out here in the storm, but the ship will be lost. That's good news for the passengers, not so good news for the owner, although I think he still would like to survive. So that's Paul, the faithful apostle. And then we're told, after 14 days being driven across the Adriatic Sea, their hopes are lifted. The, angel, the, the, the sailors think and suspect that they're near land, 
And after some, some quick measurements, it's clear that they're close to shore. And fearing that they would run into the rocks, they drop down four anchors. The idea is to drag them behind the boat to slow the boat down because it was still the middle of the night. But in doing that, some of the sailors looking to rescue themselves lowered the boat. They're like, okay, let's lower the boat. Let's get out of here. We're close to shore. We can abandon ship. We can leave these people behind. But Paul turns to the centurion and the soldiers and says, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. What does he mean by that? Well, you need sailors who know what they're doing as far as sailing a ship to stay on board. Otherwise, everyone has no idea what to do. We need those guys. So the soldiers cut the ropes away, and the sailors remained. Paul, the Roman prisoner, the experienced seaman, the faithful apostle, now puts on his caring pastor hat, and he urges them all to eat, emphasizing that they will need energy for what they will have to do next. The seas had been rough, but the difficulty of the journey was not yet over. We're told there, so Paul took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, broke it and began to eat. And just as Paul had said, the food strengthened the 276 of them and then they prepared to come to shore uh, by lightening the ship of its precious wheat cargo. And wheat was a precious commodity in those days, in particular for Rome. Now we move on to the last part, Paul the rescued servant. See, when day arrives, they don't recognize the land, but they do notice a bay and they notice a beach. And now it was time to run the ship aground, which is no easy thing to do. It has its own dangers. So three things happen almost simultaneously designed to catapult them toward shore. So they had, they had thrown back the anchors to hold them back. If they were close to land, it was the middle of the night. They didn't want to do anything in darkness. They want to know where they were going. So now day has broken and they're able to move. First of all, they cast off the four anchors. No more drag. Secondly, they regained the use of the rudders in the back untied them, so now they could steer their way in. Third, they put up what was called a foresail that was at the front of the ship. And the idea was that when all these things happened, the wind would blow and take them straight into the beach. It would just be like a catapult, and they would be there. But even with these efforts, the ship runs aground on a reef. Now, the best made plans of men, right? It's like, come on! Now, this was a very dangerous and precarious place because the front of the ship now is stuck on the reef, but now it's being pounded by the waves, and it's actually breaking up the ship. Now, what's, what's in a sense, sad or humorous or um, kind of ridiculous in the story is that in the midst of this chorus, uh, chaos, we are shocked to read that the sailor's, sailor's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. They're so consumed to their duty and responsibility. And you have to understand their role and function as soldiers. If they're in charge of prisoners and they, they, they let them free, they're going to lose their life. 
So they're, you know, they're, they're kind of like, well, this is what we have to do. But can you imagine now all the prisoners who are anticipating, ah, freedom! Now, psh, you're going to get killed. But they're all rescued by the centurion. He wants to save Paul, and he kept them from carrying out their plan. And so he ordered all who could swim to jump overboard to do it first, and then make their way to land, and the rest would find pieces of wood or planks or parts of the ship, and they could float into shore. It's quite a picture, isn't it? 276 people, either swimming, floating, grabbing on something, and finally getting to shore. And we're told here at the end, and so it was, that all, underline, were brought safely to land. Paul is just one of those people. He's a rescued servant. Now, friends, that's kind of the story, kind of quickly in a nutshell. It's a powerful story. It actually would make a really good movie if someone ever wanted to do that. But the, the amazing thing here is that the storm was, was incredibly powerful, and yet not a life was lost based on the promise of God. Now, we want to listen to the story. This is where we want to kind of pause and think through. What are the implications of it? How do we weather the storm with a, a, a gospel focus and for gospel witness? And I would like to present to you three kind of major themes that flow out of our text that not only help us if we're in Paul's situation, but in whatever storm God has put us in. here. The first one is this. We must be anchored to the sovereignty of God. Now, friends, the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty over all things is one of the most practical and comforting truths for us to learn during times of great trials. It is a big-picture truth that we nestle into that is there to help comfort us. And you could summarize the thrust of the book of Acts as the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the end of the earth. And the end of the, the earth in the thinking here is Rome, because that's ultimately where things will end up. And Rome ends up being the central place now where further ministry can take place. And just like Jesus had set his face toward Jerusalem, Paul has been setting his face toward Rome. That's where he desires to go. That's where his heart is. And this push to, to, end, uh, to the end of the earth isn't just flowing out of Jesus' missionary call to his apostles. Remember, he says there in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. But Jesus is leaning on the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 49, verse 6. This is the words of, of God. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation reach to the end of the earth. So even this journey to Rome is rooted in the Old Testament. This is all part of God's plan. It's all part of his sovereign purpose that he's fleshing out now here through the apostles and ultimately to, uh, through the apostle Paul. 
In other words, God's servant, the Messiah, won't come just to restore the tribes of Jacob and Israel. He will be a light for the nations to the end of the earth. And then, in Romans 1, this is what we read the Apostle Paul saying, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at least succeed in coming to you. I don't think this is how Paul envisioned it. But he had a yearning to go to Rome. And Paul picks up this motif of the light of salvation going to the end of the earth. And it's no surprise then in Acts 28, 14, which we'll look at next week, we're told, and so we came to Rome. So, All the events that have unfolded along the way, Paul's beatings, his imprisonment, and now even the shipwreck, are all tethered and anchored to God's sovereign purposes. Now, there's three things I just want to unpack today as far as God's sovereignty is concerned. First of all, when things are out of control, they're never out of God's control. So when you think about God's sovereignty, when things are out of your control, They're never out of God's control. You've heard me say it many times. When there is chaos on the earth, there is always stability in heaven. God isn't somehow toppled off of his throne, shocked at what he's seeing on the earth. He was not shocked when the airplanes hit the Twin Towers. He was not shocked that the world was turned upside down by COVID-19. He was not shocked that Russia invaded Ukraine. He was not shocked that people's homes were recently flooded. He was not shocked that you were, you know, you underpaid your taxes or that your loved one died or that your business looked like it was going under. He is not shocked. Paul and his companions on the ship did all they could to manage the ship during the storm, dropping the anchor, building, uh, binding the, uh, the hull, throwing off the gear and the cargo. But after doing all they could, they were not in control. But God was in control. Because God is always in control. The storm didn't take him by surprise. In fact, God caused the ship to drift 476 miles from the island of Cauda to Malta. And if you look on the map... Well, it's not up there right now, but if you remember the map, Malta is this island out in the middle of nowhere. So these two specks of land. And for the ship to end up at Malta in the darkness and turmoil of the storm would be like finding a needle in a haystack. But friends, hear this. God is rather good with needles and haystacks. This is God's sovereignty at work. See, friends, the sailors were not in control. God was. And you may not be in control of your storm, but God is. Some winds are difficult. Many winds are against us and push us off our path, or at least the path that we were wanting to follow. Others, however, are tempestuous winds. They're, They're hurricanes of life that not only blow us off our desired path, but leave us in a place of hopelessness and despair. Yet God is in 
control. So friends, the, 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 the proclamation for us is that we need to nestle into this truth. It may be out of control from your perspective, but God knows what he's doing. Secondly, God uses the storms of life to refine us. Friends, your storm may have come because of your sin. Sin has consequences and rippling effects. It brings destruction. It brings heartache with it. And so you may be facing a trial of your own making. Or your storm may have come purely by God's providence, where you've contributed nothing to your storm. Last week after church, my wife and I were leaving church. We went to the, the, the light here to go across and get onto 238. We waited, and it turned green. And I start pulling forward. And I see out of the corner of my eye a car coming down Hesperian, flying. And there were other cars that were stopped at the light, flying down the center lane, blew through the red light, and literally I had to stop. That could have changed everything. We just don't know when things are going to happen. Either way, whether it's because of my sin or it's by God's providence, either way, God is in the business of using our sin, our failures, our foolishness, and messes that we make as the preordained method of growing and maturing us in faith. See, friends, even the sin and the the fallout from your sin is the mechanism that God can use, if you'll listen to him, to refine you and to grow you. He uses our trials as the furnace to shape and refine us to be more like his son. The apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 1 verses 6 through 7, in this you rejoice. Now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, right? There's all sorts of kind of trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God uses storms to refine us. Now, we don't like storms, obviously. But if our orientation is right, God will grow us. Maybe he'll just wake us up through the storm. Third, God truly cares for us when we are in a storm. It's so tempting for us to think that since we're experiencing a trial, that it's evidence that God doesn't really care anymore. Where is he? What is he doing? Why doesn't he answer my prayers? Why is the storm taking so long? Has God abandoned me? Do you think that Paul and Luke and Aristarchus took time to pray while the storm raged for days? I expect they did. And do you think they asked similar questions? Probably. I think it's reasonable to think so, yet God had not abandoned them. He did care. I love Psalm 77. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 77. You should, I would encourage you to study it on your own. It's a psalm about a, a man who's going through a storm. It's an unnamed storm. We don't know what it is, but he's having a rough time. He can't sleep. He doesn't want to eat. 
And he's crying out to God. He's doing the right things. But it just doesn't seem like anything's changing. And with sleepless nights, it just feels like God isn't listening. He asks these questions, beginning at verse 7. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? We began our service with the promise of his steadfast love. But here the psalmist is asking, is it over? Are his promises at an end for all time? Does God keep his promises? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? See, the psalmist is reflecting the cries of our heart during the storms that we go through. Now, Peter combines God's sovereignty with his care when he tells us, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, there is a sovereignty, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him. Why? Because he cares for you. See, the storm is not an evidence that God doesn't care. The storm is evidence that God is at work. Friends, we would do well to marinate regularly in the majesty of our sovereign God who uses our storms to refine us, but never abandons us of his care. So we're called to be anchored in the sovereignty of God, but we must also take responsibility by being rooted in the word of God. Friends, it's so hard to trust in his word if we don't know his word. And as we've said so many times, we must learn what God says about trials and sufferings and storms before we enter into them. Because trying to figure out God and what he's doing in the midst of the storm is not the time when you should be discovering those things. And we need to be growing in our understanding of his character and his attributes. Why? So that we, don't, uh, we won't believe the devil's lies. We won't be deceived that salvation can be found in anything or anyone else other than Christ. And friends, we know that storms of various trials are coming, but are we doing the work to be prepared for them. I want you to notice, first of all, there's, there's the word of God in the past that helps fuel us then for our storms. Right from the start, Jesus was telling Paul what his mission was about and how difficult it would be. We've gone over these passages before. Acts 23, 11, and even in Acts chapter 9 where he, he lays out his commission for Paul, Paul knew from his past that God was at work in his life. The words of the past that God gave him fueled him then to, to know that he would experience suffering as he was carrying out his gospel ministry. So there's the word of the past, and, and many of us have words from the past, times that God has taught us things, passages of scripture that we've meditated on that will fuel us when the trial comes. Secondly, there's, there's the word of God for the present. So we can trust God's word for wisdom and direction and comfort and encouragement. If we do that, we will be different in the storm than those who don't know God. 
And Paul in the story stands out above all others in this desperate situation because of his calm faith in God. And it seems that for a little while, even Paul, Luke, and Aristarchus lost hope and were fearful because Luke states in verse 20 of our text, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Well, this is Luke speaking. See, the angel's words to Paul begin with, do not be afraid. And they imply that Paul was afraid. I hope that doesn't shock you. It shouldn't shock you. Don't be surprised by it. Be comforted by it. Why? Because Paul is only human. This was a mega storm. And if you were on that ship, you would have been afraid. When we're overwhelmed by a storm of this magnitude, even the strongest believers can momentarily falter. Now friends, these verses, verses 23 through 25, are really at the heart of this passage. For they show us what God revealed to Paul. Let me read them and then we'll pull out four things that the Lord is revealing. It says in verse 23, For this very night there stood by me, before me, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Let's just pull some things out of this. First of all, Paul knew that God was with him. There stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong. An angel is a messenger sent from God. God is sending a messenger to communicate with his apostle, with his child. As the winds blew and the ship was tossed, Paul knew that there was something solid about the presence of God. You don't, you don't feel the presence, right? You don't touch the presence, but you know the presence of God is there. Why? Because he says, I will never leave you. I will not forsake you. God was beside Paul through the entire ordeal. And although it lasted about three weeks, Paul knew that he was never alone. And friends, that should be a great source of comfort for us when we're in the storm. When you're in the hospital room, the counseling session, or standing over a casket, you know that God is with you. The truth of that is not measured by how you feel about that. You might say, well, I felt God's presence. You may have felt something. You may have felt the peace from the result of your right theology that says God is with you. But don't measure the truth of God based on your feelings. It is true. God says, I am with you. And that means he is with you in the storm, no matter how we feel. Secondly, Paul knew that he belonged to, to God. Right? Of the God to whom I belong. What a wonderful statement of ownership that is. Friends, just as a child belongs to the Father, so we belong to God. Just as a sheep belongs to a shepherd, so we belong to God. Just as a redeemer purchases our redemption with his blood, so we belong to him. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Hear this. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You belong to God. Now that should shake us a little bit to the core, but it should comfort us too. God is not abandoning that which is his. Friends, when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the the price necessary to purchase our redemption. He paid the price for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God. And in doing so, he welcomes us into his family and we now belong to him. The fact that God owned Paul enabled him to stand tall in this deadly storm. You belong to God. Isn't that a wonderful truth? You belong to God. Third, Paul knew that he was in God's service. Whom I worship, he says. The idea there is service. Paul knew that he was, in, he was God's man in God's place for God's purpose. Now, he may not have thought that this was God's place (laughs) when he got on the ship, but this is where God has placed him, and he's placed him there to serve him. He never forgot his divine calling. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Paul knew that he was commissioned by God and would be kept by God until he called him home, 2 Timothy 1. He says, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what he has entrusted to me. He knew he was in God's hands, and he knew that he could continue to serve God in whatever context he placed in. Fourth, Paul knew to trust in God. This is verse 25. He says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. The reason Paul had courage to weather the storm was that he believed God. As Dennis mentioned, active, active. It's a verb, it's moving. Truly trusting and resting in God's presence and knowledge and power will enable us to be men and women of courage and to shout the words of encouragement above the storm. So he says, take heart. Be encouraged. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. That is what God promises And that is what I believe. Is that how you approach God's word? Is that how you speak to your spouse in the storm? Is that how you comfort your children in the storm? Is that how you counsel your friends when they are in the storm? Yes, it's messy. Yes, it's confusing. Yes, it's daunting and hopeless. But God hasn't abandoned us. He is for us. He knows us. And he's working through us. The word of God is so precious in the midst of the storm. 
But it's also fueled from what word of God we have before the storm. But then there's the word of God in the future. I want to draw your attention to those wonderful words at the end of the chapter. And so it was. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. That's a statement of fact. It's a statement of truth. But it's also a statement that reflects a promise that had been fulfilled. Let me rephrase that just a little bit to make the point. And so it was just as God said it would be that all were brought safely to land. In the future, when we take time to remember and reflect on God's faithfulness to us through his word, it causes us to be, th- excuse me, to be thankful, to praise him. It causes us to give him glory. It motivates us to continue to trust what he says. And every time we believe God's word, it makes it easier to believe him the next time a storm grows up. So the word of God, friends, we must be rooted in the word of God. That's why we, you know, we say, you know, read your Bible, pray every day. I know it's kind of a Sunday school saying, but being in the word of God is the fuel that you need to face the storms of life. So we must be anchored in the sovereignty of God. We must be rooted in the word of God. Third, we must be committed to the purposes of God. What was God's purpose in the storm? In this ultimate shipwreck? I want to give you three things. First of all, it's God is getting Paul to Rome. God was still in the process of getting Paul to Rome. He hadn't abandoned that plan. It just wasn't the way that we would have expected it to happen. We want a straight line. Caesarea to Rome. How can I get there fast? Give me a non-stop flight to Rome. Well, there's no planes. A non-stop vessel to Rome. Probably didn't exist. That's why they took different boats. But as they say, this was not Paul's first rodeo. See, because in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is defending his apostleship, and he gives us a catalog of trials and storms he had to endure as Christ's apostle. Verse 25, 2 Corinthians 11, and following says this, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, three times! And night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Do you think he's trying to make a point here? In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. This was not Paul's first rodeo. When we're in a storm, we would choose the easiest path of all, wouldn't we? And if somehow we deviated from that path, we would wonder if God knew what he was doing. That's how we typically think. And we want to call for a search and rescue team to come in a helicopter, hover over us, drop down the ladder, have us climb up the ladder, and just take us away. That's the kind of rescue we want. That's not the kind of rescue 
But the Apostle Paul gets them. say, I know they didn't have helicopters back then. I get that. But in life, that's, that's the kind of rescue we pray for and we expect. But that isn't how God works typically. He takes us through jagged lines that are part of his plan and his journey. But he's still going to get Paul to his final destination. And friends, he's still taking us to our final destination. He hasn't forgotten about that. It just may not be the nice and cozy American Christian plan. It's God's plan. It's what brings glory to him. It is what is for your good. Secondly, God is growing Paul and his Christian companions. God is not just concerned about Paul getting uh, just getting Paul to Rome, but growing him, Luke and Aristarchus, in, uh, on their difficult journey. Can you imagine the kind of conversations they had in the midst of this journey, in the midst of the storm? Can you imagine the times of collective prayer? Can you imagine them joining with the rest of the crew and pastors, working hard to keep the ship afloat? And when it's all done, and they arrive in Malta, which we find in chapter 28, verse 1, you can imagine the time of debriefing that took place. Hindsight is always clearer, isn't it? Oh, look how powerful God was. Oh, look at God's providential care of us, allowing us in that moment to be under the protection of this island. Delighting in the goodness of God that he kept his promise and everyone was delivered safely ashore. Friends, the storms you and I experience will also be used to grow and encourage your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So when a church has members that are going through a storm and our church has had its share of them, it commits to pray, to serve, and to care for them. And in the process... It sees God's power, God's providence, and God's goodness on display. And the church is encouraged to press on no matter the trial or difficulty. So friends, when you remain faithful in a trial and choose to commit your life to God's care and keeping, you are preaching the gospel to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You might feel alone and that you are useless to the body of Christ, but when what you may not see is the way your example is guiding us and helping us and shaping us all to give God the glory in our lives. God is at work growing us through your storm. Getting Paul to Rome, growing Paul and his Christian companions. Third, God is giving a gospel witness to all on board through Paul. See, over the course of three weeks, because of the tempestuous storm, God was readying the people to receive the gospel witness. 275 people listened to Paul stand up and testify to his faith in God while the storm and the waves raged against the ship. They heard him proclaim the word of God and the promise that was given by God, and they, they lived the storm out, being reminded and encouraged as Paul repeated God's promise to them. Three weeks earlier, likely, they hadn't heard about the Christian God or even of Paul but now they have a better picture. 
Now, we're not told that there were any converts. That doesn't mean there weren't any. But if we're going to believe what the Bible says, the word of God does not return void. Friends, your storm not only shapes your walk and the walk of your fellow brothers and sisters, it is also a great opportunity for gospel witness. Did you notice that our proposition this morning wasn't simply weathering the storms of life? This is not about you kind of huddled up in your corner weathering the storms of life. This is weathering the storms of life for gospel witness. This is, this is what's driving through the book of Acts. Friends, being positive in the storm is not the same as proclaiming a gospel witness. A gospel witness means that you are testifying to unbelievers that, that God is good and worthy to be trusted. So when Paul encouraged the people to eat some bread, he could have thought in his mind, these are all pagan men. Why ask a blessing on the food in front of such rough men? Instead, we're told, he openly gave thanks to God in the presence of all. You see what Paul's doing? Here's a storm, and I'm going to use it as an opportunity to proclaim the goodness of God. And friends, in times of trial, people are especially open to spiritual things, aren't they? When life is out of control and nothing seems to be working, people open their hearts to hear about the good news of God. So don't hesitate to be bold and tell them about the true and living God and the eternal life that he offers them through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's just bring this all to a close. Can I have a summary concluding thought here? Our great and sovereign God has launched us on a journey of faith where he says, get in the boat, stay in the boat, serve in the boat, and only when you get to the end of your journey will it be time to get out of the boat. Implied in that is that there will be storms, there will be struggles, and you'll be tempted to abandon ship, but God says, stay, 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 serve, trust me. In my time, you will reach the goal that I have prepared for you. So don't fight the journey, friends. You may struggle with your faith to not be afraid and to trust God, but God promises that he will hold you fast. Weather, weathering the storms of life for gospel witness. That's what we're called to, friends. Lord, help us today. As we contemplate this theme, we're all affected by it, Lord. And you direct things to happen in our lives, Lord. Sometimes we are the ones who initiate it by our sin, and at other times, it happens in ways that are so unexpected. And yet, even in those contexts, you are at work. So, Lord, would you help us to lean into your sovereign care, to be people that are feeding and rooted in the Word of God, but also 
that have an outward look to see that through whatever trial or circumstance that we are going through, that you've placed us in a situation where we can testify for you. Help us, Lord, to be faithful, to trust your word, and to trust your sovereign providence in our lives. We ask this, Lord, in your precious holy name. Amen.